Welcome to How It's Musically Made, a podcast dedicated to redefining the art song tradition. I'm your co-host, Maggie. And I'm your co-host, Ben. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we are following the journey of three groups of poet, composer, pianist, and vocalist as they each work together to create an original art song. Today, we will be talking with pianist Rebecca Lupi, baritone Namdi Nuenquo, poet Marissa Davis, and composer Nevada Lozano. But before we jump into these conversations, we have an art song-related introduction for you. We received a few comments and questions about the cue music featured in this podcast, so we're going to take a minute to give you a bit of background information. The music you're hearing is a collaboration between Maggie and me. It's an art song cycle in three movements called Routine Surprise, written in 2019 and 2020. Maggie wrote the text, I wrote the music, and Maggie performed it with soprano Mo Bailey here in Colorado just before the pandemic sent us into a lockdown. In this case, the text came first, as I was free writing and sending Ben some scattered results without the intention of actually setting anything to music. But when he read Routine Surprise in three movements of morning, afternoon, and evening, he saw the potential for a musical interpretation. When I'm sending a text, I'm looking for character and mood mostly, and then a sense of dramatic pacing and rhythm in the text. So I want to know what the climaxes are, when can I get quiet and subdued, when can I get energetic, etc. And I try to distill the arc of the poem and add some musical flavor that supports but doesn't overwhelm the text. So let's listen to a longer clip with soprano Mo Bailey and Maggie at the piano. So that's Routine Surprise, which you'll continue to hear throughout this podcast. And now let's get into today's conversations. First, we'll hear from Namdi Nwankwo, a baritone actor and director currently based in Boulder, Colorado. Namdi is collaborating with me as a librettist on an opera project for See You Now, an opera development workshop here in Boulder. Welcome to the podcast, Namdi. So you have a diverse background when it comes to storytelling and, and acting and performance. And so in your undergrad, you studied directing, acting, etc. Um, can you tell us about your studies in each of those areas? Yeah. So I got my Bachelor of Arts in acting and directing. I came into that out of a, a medical degree because I just realized that I wanted to act and direct and, and sing more. We we covered really like the whole gambit of things. We did a lot of Shakespeare, so I got to get my feet wet in, in all the different kinds of theater. I 
kind of came into directing later on in my undergraduate career. Just because as an actor, every role that I've been in, I really try to see the full scope of a show because everything influences everything. Something a character says, you know, earlier in the show could have bearing on uh, actions later on in the show. Uh, You know, a, a playwright put those words in there for a reason. So I feel like every word has uh, has meaning. What you just said about every word meaning something and the librettist or the playwright put it there for a reason, that's obviously so true in art song because we don't have that many words necessarily. So how do those skills translate to your singing and to performance and acting in music? It's all, it's all storytelling. Um, all of it, uh, whether it's a play, whether it's an opera, whether it's an art song, there's a story being told. Um, there's always a who, what, when, where, and why. Um, and, and in my acting training, we always talked about given circumstances, Stanislavskian method of acting, um, just breaking down those given circumstances. Who are you? Uh, what do you want? Why do you want it? What are you willing to do to get it? And I feel like every good story has those elements. It has a subject, and that subject has a want. And you kind of have to break it down and figure out what those are, because then it influences how you might sing it, how you might act it. Absolutely. At this point, let's listen to a little bit of a piece by William Grant Still, performed by Namdi. Uh, this is a recording of Song for the Lonely. And the pianist is Keith Teepin. So, Namdi, can you tell us a little bit about William Grant Still? So, William Grant Still was a uh, Harlem Renaissance composer. He came right out of the Harlem Renaissance and really, really prolific uh, Black composer. Um, I absolutely adore his music. I, I wish that it could be performed more. I know that the, uh, the Still estate is very uh, protective of his music, but a lot of beautiful music that has a lot of romantic influence, as well as uh, a lot of jazz. He actually partnered a lot with uh, his wife, uh, Verna Arvey. Yeah, she, she wrote a lot of the uh, texts that he set. He also did a lot with, uh, with Langston Hughes. I just absolutely adore his works. So that brings up another question. So this is an art song, and there's so many different thoughts about acting within an art song. Do you find uh, how you interpret or act an art song to be different from opera or musical theater? Um, or is it sort of the same for you? It's just storytelling or, or are there different sort of gradations of how much you act, I guess? I would say, yeah, I would say there are different gradations. It depends on what you're singing. I think if it's something that is like a, like a epic story. So like there are a lot of uh, Schumann and Schubert pieces, a lot of leader where I think a good amount of acting is necessary because it's an epic story that you're telling. Whereas I feel some other art songs are kind of like a stream of consciousness. I feel that way um, 
a lot about Song for the Lonely. Um, it's really kind of a stream of consciousness. I feel like it's uh, sort of a soliloquy, kind of just voicing their thoughts out loud. So I don't think a great deal of act, uh, of acting is necessary there, but I think that you can be rooted in one place when it comes to uh, to a lot of art song, but really kind of show us what's going on through the voice and with your face. I feel like mm-hmm. there are a lot of good physical actors. There are not a lot of great facial actors. And so to answer the question, I think that, yeah, it's a, it's depending on what you're singing, there's a, there's a gradation of how much acting you should or should not do. Is facial acting something that you had to practice and work on having moved from theater acting into like art song performance? So I have a little bit of film training as well. Uh, And so that kind of, I, I honestly kind of carry it over because with, I feel like with opera or like with any sort of staged theater, big grand gestures are important because you're trying to also play to the back of the house. Small actions won't read. But with something a little bit more uh, intimate like art song, I kind of think of art song like, you know, it's it's a close-up. With, with sort of something a little bit more intimate, I feel like smaller actions carry over so much more. So I, I it wasn't too hard a transition. If I'm really in tune with the piece, I'm I'm thinking about the text. Not not so much in terms of like, oh, do I remember what I'm singing? But I'm thinking about what does this text mean to me as I'm singing. And there's this idea of, of a beat, right? In in straight theater acting or film acting, yeah. I guess too. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? You could think of it as sort of like a uh like a phrase in music. Um there is in every beat there is a beginning, middle, and end. It's little tidbits of action that are happening, kind of met sort of with a a little rest or transition as well. Mm-hmm. And is are there beats in art song? I mean, we talked the the still is kind of as you said like a soliloquy, but in art songs that maybe are a little more structured, do you find that you have to do the same thing, like break things down into? who, what, where, when, how in these micro phrases? Uh, yeah, depending on the piece. I think uh, in this, it's to me, it's pretty straightforward in, uh, in Song for the Lonely. I feel like it's uh, someone just talking about their loneliness and uh, kind of bringing in the nature aspect of uh, rain as a central th- uh, theme. The, the first sort of line is like, raindrops soft from the mist, uh, disturb the stillness of my thoughts. Here he is, this lonely person, or here the subject is a lonely person, being alone in their thoughts and those thoughts being broken up uh, by the rain. And also kind of that rain sort of giving them a sense of calm uh, in their loneliness, figuring out like the the intention behind each of that. So yeah, I I feel like I have to do the same kind of a beat work uh, with my art songs as well. Mm -hmm. It's like putting it under a microscope though, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's cool. And imagine doing that beat work with actual live feedback from the poet. So thanks, Namdi. It was good to get your thoughts about dissecting an art song for a performance. We'll see you soon. All right. See you soon. Take care. You too. Next, we have pianist Rebecca Lupi who I met at Vanderbilt University when we were both pursuing our bachelor degrees in piano performance. Rebecca has since moved to Bloomington, Indiana, to study at the Jacobs School of Music at IU. We'll start by listening to a recent recording of her solo playing. This is Nikolai Kapustin's Etude No. 1, Opus 40, recorded by Rebecca earlier this week. (laughs) 
We're also going to hear Rebecca play in collaborative settings. This next one is what we might call a split-screen performance. It was recorded during quarantine, with both Rebecca and soprano Lisa York recording in separate locations to be edited together. Here's Moses Hogan's arrangement of Give Me Jesus. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. We're, we're happy to have you here. We just listened to your performance of the hymn, Give Me Jesus, which was a remote recording project during the pandemic. Can you tell us about the split screen process um, and also maybe for the listeners who aren't familiar with that? Yeah, to start, I am very much not a technology person, but thanks to somewhat user-friendly video editing, um, I was just able to put both of our videos into iMovie and pretty much like dragging it around until the beats and like where you want to have lined up are lined up. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I learned how to do that um, because I've been able to do a lot of other collaborations during the pandemic uh, because I took the time to figure that out. This was with voice, but you also did a couple other online collaborations too, right? Can you tell us about the other ones you did? I have a violist friend uh, at Indiana University um, named Mallory Carnes, and we've done several uh, virtual collaborations. Um, our favorites have been uh, arrangements that I've done of Studio Ghibli film music um, <laughs> from movies like Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited Away. Those have really kept me going. We also have a recording of you performing with a violinist, uh, the second movement of Greek Violin Sonata in C minor. This is with violinist Sing Sing Nordmo. In the spirit of Grieg, you also have an interest in folk music and singing. Um, where does that interest come from and how does it relate to your own practice as a pianist? It goes way back to when I first heard uh, recordings of the band Nickel Creek when I was a young teenager. I just loved the lyricism and the improvisatory nature, of course, of bluegrass and folk. Pretty much throughout the last 10 or so years, I've been listening more and more to groups like Punch Brothers and artists like Sarah Jarose and Aoife O'Donovan. And I just so admire their freedom in their improvisation, but also it's backed by such a knowledge of their craft. And I am still trying to figure out how that inspiration can be uh, channeled into my own work since 
most of my notes are written down. <laughs> um, I've started dabbling in some, some improvisation, um, folk stuff on the piano. And then I also have played fiddle for fun for several years now. And I'm able to do modest solos in some songs that I've worked on. So looking back at both voice and instrumental music, how does playing each of those types of repertoire compare for you? It's interesting in preparing instrumental rep. It sort of opens up a whole world of possibility and imagination. It's good to know the composer's intent and surroundings and cultural influences, but at the end of the day, there usually isn't a text to guide uh, interpretation. You kind of can tap into your imagination and personal experience to form your own very specific emotional response through sound. So that's something I really enjoy about an instrumental interpretation. With vocal, since you have the text there, it's sort of, it's no less of an imaginative creative process. It's just slightly more focused, slightly more guided, I think. Like adding the poem, the poetry side of it, it's so interesting to me because the poem alone contains worlds. Like there's so much to explore with the sounds of words and the rhythms of the text, even multiple understandings of what words or lines might mean. And so then that interplaying with the vocal line, interplaying with the piano part, I love that. <laughs> so that's pretty much why I'm uh, pursuing bo vocal. I love the um, the description you just said of the sounds of words. I think that's that's so important to realize that Music is is a description in writing too, and that's something that we'll we'll talk about with Marissa soon. Um, the idea of musicality in poetry and in writing. So thanks for bringing that up. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for being part of how it's musically made. Thanks, guys. Next up, we have poet Marissa Davis, who is also a Vanderbilt grad. And after moving from Nashville to Paris, she settled into Brooklyn, where she's now pursuing her MFA at New York University. Before we get into the conversation, we'll hear Marissa read one of her recent poems. All right. So this is the poem. Um, it's called Union, and it's loosely inspired by Louise Glick's poem, The Central World, which is a favorite of mine. Um, so here it goes. You were only plucking hyacinths. Spring gnashing over you, an urgency, a greed. Wounded by brightness, the sudden gore of its own empty. This, the beginning of knowledge. Birth commanded your mother outward. Her hands, blooded echoes of the black land. Her hands, obedience made flesh. Lifelines heavy slung with tulip bulbs. Nearby, child you, child sitting, crisscrossed across the unchild earth. You watched surrender without seeing it, until you were only, you were only. You sniffed the flower, decided rashly, mashed its skin into yours, broken stems, a salt of sticky milk. Oil seeping, leaping, sprouting fang, puncturing your plump small wrist. This, the destruction of the body, annihilation of limit, disparate forces flowing as one, or a singular force shaped disparately, promiscuity of essence, substance. 
You could smell it in you now. Its blood, your blood, dissolving, rising, until new, thick-breathed, you shuddered into your warm, divisible elements. Once oriole, once fungus, gold down, torn light, mycelium. Weren't you, right then, also tulip bulb and the hard dirt warming it? Also persimmon, rotting also in the weeds, also frenzy, tangled mercy, bull thistle razoring the wind, also without lack, as earth, immune to ruin, being the earth and the everything that rages through earth, knowing exactly what it is, exactly what it is owed. March, and the south air already deep as river. You awoke burning in the belly of it, a small thing suspended in her own without beginning, without end. And your mother, nearby, oblivious to how loud you did not scream. Your mother, close-lipped, eaten with toil, something in her sirening, from the earth you can't own nothing, not even yourself. Perhaps it was the sweat her body leaked onto the peeling bulbs. You saw it, something of her flowing down and born and buried and already lashing upward with them. Beautiful. Thank you. That, I mean, it's a great place to start. So you have like a wonderful performance when you're reading the poem um, and a couple of different questions sort of tie with that. So I'm wondering if you can talk about like the performance of your poetry and what that means to you, uh, like reading it aloud. And then if, if there's any kind of musicality or, or music influencing your writing or your performance of your own poetry. Performance and music are, are pretty intricately tied for me. Um, musicality is, I think, always what I'm kind of pushing forward towards when I'm writing poetry, trying to sing into the kind of the, the rhythms of the work and the way that the words are kind of interacting and playing with each other. Honestly, quite a nervous person when it comes to performing my work, uh, when it comes to performing anything, really. But I think especially when it's kind of my own writing, a kind of solution that I found towards that was if I can sink as deeply as possible into interacting with kind of the the rhythms of the words as I'm reading rather than than using that attention to kind of to paying it towards the audience I think it became after that a lot easier for me to kind of learn how to you know share my writing in a public space um interacting with the musicality of it was a kind of salvation in terms of just not being overrun by nerves when I'm kind of giving it to other people I think I also I have a lot of friends who come out of slam poetry and though I myself never had any real interaction with that world, I think the kind of vivacity that they give the art and the kind of physicality that they give the art um, as they're sharing it, I think is something that has really inspired me in my own kind of performance. Um, and I think it definitely, it makes it a lot more enjoyable for the audience. And I think it reflects more of maybe what the author themselves was kind of, you know, lending to the poem in their in their production of it. And I say now that like musicality is so much of what I, I aim for when I'm writing. And I think a lot of that is because my kind of introduction to it is, is rooted in in song um, and in, in what way can words on their own become a song, even when you don't have access to a way to give it a, a, a musical shape. And so I think I, I kind of kept that with me. I'd love to hear more about this specific poem. Like, when did you write it? And can you tell us more about what's happening yeah, so this one is a funny one um, in terms of my writing of it took 
a long time. <laughs> I, I'm I, I'm bad at revision. Um, and I think also because of the way that rhythms do work for me, I find that even if the words aren't right the first round, the music tends to be right the first round, and that makes it hard for me to kind of revise and end up happy with what I, I, I end at. Um, but this is a work, though, that it, I revised, goodness, probably five or six times. I wrote the original a couple of years back, um, and it came off of a poem that I, I love very deeply, which is The Central World by Louise Glick. And in that particular work, well, so the speaker is like with family, with, with cousins and the grandmother, and the grandmother is teaching them how to make, I think, a particular kind of juice. Um, but as they're making the juice, she kind of sinks into this feeling of the interactions of, of the self with like the, the physical mode of creation, um, the kind of attention to the colors that are rising in it, attention to like the tastes that are that are happening and how that kind of lends a, a deeper interaction with the self and with the world around one. And, and I think I, I just fell really deeply in love with that kind of concept of how a memory and how a very kind of simple, a simple kind of interaction with one's physical environment could lend a, a much larger kind of revelation of, of the self in one's place in the world. And I wanted to write something that kind of had a similar kind of underpinning to it. And so for mine, when I was younger, my mom kept a, a garden in our backyard. As I got older, she stopped because our dogs started tearing it up. But <laughs> when I was a kid, she would she would um, plant gladiolus bulbs in particular in our backyard. And so I started from kind of that interaction of that kind of memory of, of being with my mother as a child and watching her plant these things just kind of watching her tend to the earth and, and be tended to by the earth in a kind of sense as well, kind of what that led to for me in terms of how this kind of powerful sense of, of the way that the land and the human can interact. That's, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Um, you've also mentioned this, this concept of embodiment too, distinction between mind and body, right? As well as our relation to the world around us. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. Embodiment is something that I, I think about a lot and I, I struggle with sometimes in certain ways. Um, for one, just existing in the world as, as a Black woman and what the body needs in that sense, as far as not just something that I inhabit and am, but also something that is, is reflected back at me in certain ways and not always ways that are positive. And then on the other end, this kind of, I think, finally as a kind of solution to that, a, a realization of, of the body as existing as a, a natural thing and a natural substance, um, in a sense. For me personally, a lot of distress arises when I, I take those things as separate. Myself as being separate from the body that I live in and my body as being separate from from nature, the environment, from from the world that is that is around me. And so I think that's something that I, I address quite often in, in my poetry. And I think this particular poem is is maybe one of the works of mine that addresses that most strongly. Yeah, and especially when we're talking about like musicality and, and itself, you know, working with like physical vibrations of sound in the the kind of world around you, um, that is also in a way inseparable from human language and human experience and just like existing in the world. Yes, 100%. Um, and I think as you're saying with music, I think it's very interesting because it's an experience that we think of as often a, a kind of purely sensational experience or like a purely auditory that becomes kind of an emotional experience. But it's it's based in the physical vibrations of the world around us. You know, it's it's based in something that is is very, you know, not tactile, but 
that has a, a physical existence as well that I think is often forgotten. So yeah, shifting a little bit. Um, so you have uh, interest in translation as well, which is really cool. I'm wondering if you could talk about that, uh, your background in it and your experience doing translation work. Yeah, so I am a huge French nerd and I have been for, for quite a long time. Um, I started studying it in high school, um, minored it in college, studied abroad here and there. And then I, I lived in France for the past couple of years before moving to New York City. And so I kind of got into translation first as more kind of just personal exercise um, in terms of I would take my own poems sometimes and as a revision exercise, translate them into French and then translate them back. Um, which I, I found could be really interesting in terms of just being quite intentional about my language and not just saying things because they sound pretty, but actually knowing for sure what they mean. Like I found, for example, the word the word Tinder doesn't translate quite the same way in French, whereas in English you can use it to mean either like, you know, Tinder to the touch as far as something that kind of hurts if you place too much pressure on it. Or, you know, a Tinder touch is something different, though. It's, it's something that's quite gentle um, towards the self. And so having to differentiate between those two words in the French sense, for example, um, kind of made me more aware of the ways that I was using you know, terminology in my, in my work in English. But then I, I kind of just started, I had a lot of free time my first year in Paris. I was working as an English language assistant, which your contract is really only for like 12 hours a week. Um, and, you know, plus a little bit more for commute time. So I just kind of, and I also had no money as a thing. So I was only working 12 hours a week. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in libraries um, and would just kind of wander around and, and read books. And I, and try to like pick up books of poetry here and there in particular. Um, and I think through that and just finding things I love to read and saying, how can I put this into English um, became just a kind of a fun practice for me. I, and I think this goes back, I guess, to, to our larger theme of, of music and musicality and rhythm. Um, it becomes a kind of puzzle piece in, when you're translating, because what you're leaning towards is how does this sound the most natural, the most lyrical, the most poetic in English, while still retaining the proper sense that it has in French as much as is possible. And also in terms of art song performance, a poem, a lot of the time in a different language, if you're thinking of like German art song or, or French melody, the first thing that we're told to do in in studying and performing an art song is to translate it. And I feel like more, you know, young students who are learning the process kind of translate for the purpose of just learning what the poem is about and what the words mean literally. But it's so much more than that, right? Like just as you're saying, it's a musicality of the words that you need to understand in in your language and in another language in order to then really process the poem and then translate that into a musical form. That's so interesting. Thanks for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a really, I had a great time. <laughs> Thanks for chatting me up. <laughs> Finally, we'll talk with New York-based composer-lyricist Nevada Lozano. Nevada and I go way back. We've been good friends since we met at Rice University back in 2015. And he's currently working on a few really cool musical projects in New York City and is an active collaborator as a pianist and music director. Here's a clip from one of those projects, a musical in progress entitled Ramona, which Nevada will speak about in a minute. This is an excerpt from the number Donde la Tierra Toca el Cielo, performed by Mariela Flor Olivo as Ramona. Enjoy! When I get there, what will I see? A woman's strands of silver in her hair, 
Welcome to How It's Musically Made, Nevada. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Super excited to have you as a part of this. So the poet Marissa was talking a lot about language because she does translation work, which is really cool. Um, So maybe we could talk a little bit about your own project, Ramona, which obviously has some bilingual aspects, but maybe just tell us about the plot, how you got into writing that story and, and give the audience a background about that project. Absolutely. Uh, So uh, it's based on a book called Ramona, which was written in 1884 by somebody named Helen Hunt Jackson. That author was interested in shining a light on the uh, plight of Native Americans in Southern California and the difficulties they face, especially at the hands of the uh, U.S. government. And she tried to capture the interest of the public by first writing uh, a nonfiction book called A Century of Dishonor. And uh, it's a very dry read, uh, and it didn't really capture the interest that in the way that she'd hoped. So she decided, okay, I'm going to try again. I'm going to I'm going to write this epic romance, and then buried in there, there's going to be a lot of information about how the Native Americans have suffered and been challenged by you know the circumstances placed on them by settlers and the government and all that. And that was a, a much more popular novel, and uh, it led to a lot of tourism in Southern California. People wanted to see the location, you know, where the book take place, um, and so it really did have an impact on readers. Um, and the book itself is about uh, a, a girl of mixed descent, an orphan, growing up in Southern California in the 1850s, just after. Uh, it had become a U.S. state, uh, and she falls in love with a Native American uh, ranchero, and they elope, and they uh, look for a place in Southern California that, where, that they can call home. But everywhere they go, they're they're forced off the land by settlers, and um, it's it's a very tragic, uh, star-crossed lovers kind of story, uh, and it just sweeps you up like all those stories should, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe touch upon the the bilingual aspect. So how do you approach that, um, both in terms of writing lyrics, um, kind of getting into the language of Spanish, and then writing music? Yeah, I think about it a lot. Uh, one of the things that interests me most about Ramona is um, it deals with a couple different cultural groups. It deals with the American settlers. It deals with uh, Mexican landowners. Uh, it deals with uh, Native American inhabitants. There's uh, people who have just recently come from Spain. There's Franciscan 
priests. So you got a lot of different cultural groups to consider. For me, it just seemed like a really delicious challenge to try and write music that fit in a musical theater context, but was actually very, very faithful to those styles that those cultural groups might uh, uh, might have listened to. And so for me, the big in was uh, Mexican music, uh, just because my dad is from Mexico. And so even though I didn't really grow up uh, listening to a lot of, you know, mariachi music or anything like that, I thought like, oh, this is this is something that I might have access to. So I did uh, a whole lot of listening. And my first goal was to find music that I loved and inspired me. You know, you want to find a piece that's like, oh, I wish I could write something like that. Or I wish I had written that. So as, as soon as I did, a, I, I did that listening and I found music that really, really inspired me, started to study it and see like, what chords could you do you usually find? You know, what's the instrumentation, that kind of thing, and uh, try to uh, make my style fit that, you know, I really tried to channel it. Um, and I did the same with some of the Native American music um, uh, or the songs that I, that kind of have Native American styles and that I listened to a lot of, of different like Native American flute players and, and different songs and chants and stuff like that. It's taken a lot of study, and I'm still working on the piece. And so, uh, it it a big element, uh, a big part of the writing process is studying, you know, and listening. In in thinking about the process of writing Ramona or writing anything else, um, is there usually a typical order of events when the lyrics or music come, or does it change every time? Uh, yeah, it definitely changes every time. Um, I think with working on uh, a song that's part of a musical or any type of show um there's more ways to get into the song and i guess i guess that's that's the key is you want to find the in you want to find the secret door and so i kind of think of it as like knocking on the wall checking for that hollow place where the secret door is the trap door or whatever is is and sometimes that comes from a like a musical phrase that i'll play on the piano and i'll hear that and i'll, I'll go oh okay that's the way in i know how to write it and if that doesn't happen then um you know if, if i'm writing the lyrics to the song then i can try and come up with hooks and sometimes uh that's the way in or sometimes it's um uh, brainstorming ideas or doing like a stream of consciousness writing exercise from the character's point of view and maybe there's a phrase that excites me um so yeah for me the way in is always different but it's about finding the way in and there's lots of little tools to to try and find that secret door yeah so say if you get a text from somebody else that's not yourself mm -hmm. what, what are some ways that you might find that secret door with somebody else's text you know it's funny because i haven't collaborated a whole lot but when i have i've always looked at the text and there's been some kind of phrase that sticks out to me um, and usually it's something rhythmic, mm -hmm. uh, just, just like some pattern of the words. And uh, and uh, it's just instantaneous. You see that and you're like, oh, okay, I, I there's a direction I can go with that. Um, so, yeah, I'm very excited to see what our, our poet comes up with. I'm sure there's going to be tons of phrases in there that uh, excite me and get me started. It's yeah, absolutely. And it's good that you mentioned rhythm sticking out in in the words you read because that's exactly what Marissa said before that she writes kind of based on musicality um, and she thinks of her her poetry in a musical way. So this should be very easy then. <laughs> <laughs>
What's the difference for you between an art song and a musical theater song? Uh, I generally think in terms of structure. I think the structures are usually fairly different. With musical theater, I generally think in terms of, you know, is there a verse? Is there a chorus? Um, is it uh, strophic, which I guess is an art form song, but do we just get the same verse over and over again? Um, is there a bridge? Um, and yeah, while composing musical theater songs, I kind of allow myself to think in those terms. Whereas with an art song, especially in a like a contemporary setting, I think it could be a little more through composed and um, you could think of it uh, like uh, composing in smaller blocks, like you have motifs and you use those small blocks to create a song. Whereas um, with musical theater, if you're thinking of those bridges and choruses, you're, you're thinking of much larger blocks. Well, I think that's it. Thanks so much. For, awesome. For yeah. yeah. Make me sound smart. <laughs> you're already very eloquent. But yeah, it's fun. I'm actually meeting with uh, our group in half an hour. We have a Zoom call. Awesome. Nice. Cool. Yeah, we'll say yeah. hi to everybody. Yeah. I will. <laughs> Thank you guys for putting this together. I'm excited to get started with the project. And we'll close with another excerpt from Ramona called I'll Take You There, performed by tenor Esteban Suero. There's a hill to the west where I'm told life began where the earth met the sky and gave birth to We'll talk again with Rebecca, Namdi, Marissa, and Nevada in three weeks to see how their creative process is going. And next week, we'll meet our third and final group of collaborators. In the meantime, don't forget to stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at How It's Musically Made. This project is supported in part by the Paul R. Judy Center for Innovation and Research at the Eastman School of Music. If you would like to sponsor an episode or contribute to the project, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram at How It's Musically Made. Thank <laughs> you.